Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the 19th century, when philosophers and anthropologists were looking at the world around them and asking themselves, what is inequality? Has it always been there or did it emerge at some point? And they looked at other societies around them, particularly here in the US where I live. They were trying to build the most egalitarian country on earth. And yet living among them, indigenous Americans were already living in very egalitarian ways. So they had to grapple with this fact that here were societies that were already much more equal. And the way they squared that circle was to tell themselves all these matriarchal societies are just primitive. And that's how everybody was once, before men wised up and took the power which is naturally owed to them. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Back when I was the editor of Cosmopolitan another lifetime ago, there was a cover line technique that we loved to use in magazine land. It would go like this. Everything you know about dot, dot, dot is wrong. So it would be everything you know about, you know, fighting for the corner office or everything you know about cat eye makeup or everything you know about your vagina is wrong. It worked as an attention-grabbing device on the front of a magazine and I think in many ways pointed to an era that was on the horizon, an era in which so much of what we took to be true for decades, even centuries, was about to be questioned and debunked. And of course, we now straddle that era. And today I talk to a woman who is at the forefront of this charge. Yep, Angela Saini has made a career out of challenging pseudoscience and psychobabble and all kinds of assumptions and expectations. Now, before we get to the wild idea that she will flesh out with us in this chat, I want to give a bit of a picture of Angela's intellectual range. She has a master's in engineering from Oxford and another in science and security from the Department of War Studies at King's College London. She's made documentaries on the climate crisis, on birdsong, yes, and another on eugenics. Her previous books, all award winners, include Superior, which looked at the return of race science, and Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong. Angela also founded Challenging Pseudoscience, which now sits within London's Royal Institution and is a network of journalists, experts and scientists who work to ensure the public gets access to good science. And she sits on a bunch of other esteemed British and global scientific boards. 
Makes perfect sense then that she was named one of the world's top 50 thinkers by Prospect magazine in 2020, and in 2018 she was voted one of the most respected journalists in the UK. Now, I could talk to Angela about any or all of the above, but for today's purposes, we talk about the theme of her latest book, The Patriarchs, How Men Came to Rule. This book explores the roots of gender depression and how patriarchal systems became embedded in societies and then spread across the globe. But it doesn't make the argument that we just need to return to some kind of golden age that existed before the patriarchy, you know, one where we worship goddesses and things were more peaceful and and nature-honouring. Because that story is as false as the one that says male superiority is set in some kind of biological imperative, that it's somehow been inevitable and universal for time immemorial. So what is the real story? How did men come to rule? And will they always rule going forward? Okay, let's bring in Angela Saini. Angela, thank you so much. Welcome to Wild. It's lovely to speak to you all the way over there in New York City. Oh, it's my pleasure entirely. Thank you for having me. Look, on this podcast, I try to stick to one wild idea or question and then sort of blow things out from there. And today, what I really want to cover is how did men come to rule? Why is there a patriarchy? But first, I really want to get an understanding of whether you know, this idea of men running the show is in fact correct. You know, the basic idea that men are in charge because they are stronger, smarter, or better suited to it. And that this has been the case for the bulk of human history because it was inevitable. Is that wrong? It is wrong. Yes. And I'm still surprised actually that we still hold that assumption and it runs through so much, even feminist literature. Sometimes I read there's always this implication that we have always been this way, that when we fight for gender equality, we're reversing some kind of time-honoured system that has been around forever, and that's why it's so difficult. And when you look at the historical evidence, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, history does not show that we have always been male-dominated. In fact, there are societies right now that are matrilineal and matrilocal and don't follow that same patriarchal pattern. Yeah, I think I read that, and I was quite shocked to read this, that there was a study that was done that showed that globally there are, I think, 590 societies known to be traditionally patrilineal, 362 that were bilateral, meaning they acknowledged descent from both parents, and another 160 were recognised as matrilineal. It's sort of interesting. I mean, sure, there have been more patrilineal societies, but there's Mm -hmm. been a substantial number of others that haven't been Yeah, and that's just right now. So back in the past, there would have been far more social variation than we have now. That's just today's societies that you're describing. But for example, if we go back into prehistory, one of the first places that I visited when I was writing The Patriarchs was Chattelhuyuk, which is one of the earliest large-scale settlements that we have archaeological data from. So this site is 9,000 years old. It predates the pyramids by thousands of years. It predates Stonehenge by thousands of years. And here is a site that, according to archaeologists who have worked there, there wasn't much difference in how men and women lived. Every single measure we have of gender difference using archaeological data, remember this is pre-writing, so we don't have their own account of how they were living or what they were thinking, but 
They ate pretty much the same food. They did pretty much the same work. They were buried in pretty much the same ways. They spent around the same amount of time indoors and outdoors. And women were far from invisible because from that period, all across that region, we have loads and loads of female figurines. So women were clearly visible and they were possibly even very authoritative. This was in Turkey or what's modern day Turkey. It was that yeah. region, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah that's and I think right. you've also said that there wasn't much of a difference in size, presumably because they were doing similar work and eating similar amounts of food. Well, yeah, that's possibly it. I mean, there there probably is some kind of innate basis to the size difference between men and women, but that size difference varies across the world. And certainly at Chatelhuyuk, what they saw was that the size difference between men and women was slight. And we have to remember that even in our own societies today, part of the reason that in our imaginations or in popular culture, we think of men and women being completely different in size is partly because we do this to ourselves. This is about socialization and how we eat and how we bulk up and what we think is appropriate for us to look. That stereotype of the waifish thin woman and the big bulky man is something that we artificially create within ourselves on top of whatever size difference might actually occur in nature. Yeah, it's so interesting. Off the back of that, I think something that really interested me when I've heard you speak about it and write about it is that the opposite of a patriarchy is not a female-dominated matriarchy as such because matrilineal societies saw women and men share power. And so a matriarchy didn't necessarily look like the opposite of a patriarchy. That kind of blows my mind. <laughs> I think we're so wedded to this idea that it has to be one or the other. Either men are in power or women are in power. It's very difficult for us to imagine a world in which men and women share power, in which gender doesn't really matter very much. It's about the individual rather than what sex or gender you belong to. But that's often what you see in matrilineal and matrilocal societies, which are each very, very different from each other. So there are some, for instance, the Mosuo in China, in which there isn't marriage as we might conceive of it elsewhere. There is what anthropologists have called walking marriage. So a woman, in fact, all children live in their mother's houses their whole lives, including men. So men will not live with their own children. They will be raising their sister's children in their mother's house. So when a girl comes of age, she's given a chamber inside her mother's house into which she can invite men to stay the night and then they just leave the next day. And that's why it's called walking marriage. And that can be any number of men, you know, over time. So there isn't those same traditions or the same monogamous traditions that we associate with marriage elsewhere. And then we have, for example, among the Nairas, which were a very big matrilineal community in South India, in Kerala, we again have different systems of marriage. This idea that a woman is sexually free, she can choose her own partner. And she has a lot of agency, the same standards around modesty and the sexual double standard, which you see in other societies, just traditionally didn't exist there. So each society is different. And often what you see is not that women hold all the power, it's that the power is shared between men and women. So there might be, for example, the eldest female in the house might be very powerful, but also her brother. So the uncle to the children will also have some kind of power. And there is a huge degree of variation, which we should expect, because when you can think of all the different ways in which we might organize ourselves, why would we pick just one or why would we pick just two? 
Yeah. So I think the conclusion that you really draw is it's complex. It's not yeah. as straightforward <laughs> as just it's one or the other. But I am intrigued to know whether in patriarchal societies we almost always or always see men in power. Whereas in the matriarchal or matrilineal societies, there's more of a shared power structure, potentially even even power structure. Is that right? Anthropologists do say that there are no matriarchal societies now. Perhaps there were in the past, but we don't see them now. Patriarchal societies are defined by men in positions of authority at all levels. But very often that isn't all men having authority. Very often that is an elite strata of men having authority. And certainly that's what you see in different patriarchies all over the world is that there is still a sharing of power. There is still a diffusion of power, not just according to gender, but also according to age. So, for example, in a patriarchal extended family, like in South Asia or the Middle East, you know, there are many people who live still in ex big extended families. The mother-in-law, the mother of the household, will also hold considerable power over the members of her family, particularly her own daughter-in-law. So there is still some degree of power being shared, but it's much more lopsided, I guess, in these patriarchal societies. There's much more homogeneity in the way that these patriarchies are organized. But that's because of history. That's because this particular way of organizing people has spread deliberately. It was spread by empires and colonies over many thousands of years. Okay. So that really leads us to how did men come to rule? I think we often have this idea of this big monolithic takeover that suddenly wiped out an ancient goddess-worshipping, peaceful, nature-honouring, matriarchal society that somehow existed at some point in history. And I think there's always been discussion to this effect. I know that even in feminist studies, this is sort of what we assumed to be the case. And I think there's a lot of nostalgia fake nostalgia, there's some time, a world, you know, that once existed and that we need to get back to that world and then everything will be fixed. But your research has found, no, that's not quite the case. Well, the reason that that idea came about in the first place was because in the 19th century, when philosophers and anthropologists were looking at the world around them and asking themselves, how did we get to this? What is inequality? Has it always been there or did it emerge at some point? And they looked at other societies around them, particularly here in the US where I live, you know, they were trying to build the most egalitarian country on earth. You know, the founders of the United States thought that they were anti-patriarchal when they were building their nation. And yet living among them, indigenous Americans were already living in very egalitarian ways. For example, here in the New York state, the Haudenosaunee peoples already held women in very high positions of authority. There were clan mothers long before there were the United States founding fathers. Women ran agriculture. They were matrilineal. So name and property would be passed through the female line if there was property, because property was conceived of differently. So already they had to grapple with this fact that here were societies that were already much more equal or egalitarian than the ones they already were trying to create. And the way they squared that circle was to tell themselves, well, they are just primitive. All these matrilineal 
communities, all these matriarchal societies are just primitive. And that's how everybody was once. This was how all humans lived once upon a time before men wised up and took control of everything and took the power which is naturally owed to them. So even they thought, these European philosophers, really genuinely were convinced that patriarchy was the natural order of things and that these people were just living in backward ways until they were civilized. So it was always a racist idea, this idea that matriarchy belonged to the past and patriarchy belongs to the present, because these societies were also modern. It's not that indigenous societies weren't also modern at the same time. They had just organized themselves differently. They just conceived of the world differently. And it worked for them. But the devastating impact of that kind of theory in the 19th century was for European colonizers to say, okay, well, if these societies are not civilized yet, we will civilize them into patriarchy, which is essentially what happened. These young uh, Native American children were sent to boarding schools in which girls were taught to be housewives and boys were taught to be the heads of their households and do agriculture. So completely switching roles, essentially. Women were told for the first time, you can't name your children after yourself or your mother. You have to name them after the father of the children, which they hadn't done before. And that was a huge change in you know, the way they imagined themselves. And Christian missionaries did the same. They kind of undermined these traditional religions in which the world started with a woman or in which there were goddesses. That happened all over the world. So when I write about the age of patriarchy, people often ask me, how old is patriarchy? Then when did it begin? Well, it's true that in some parts of the world, it is thousands of years old. But if you're Haudenosaunee living in the US, for you, it is well within living memory. It's interesting, you make a point in your work that gender oppression comes much later than other forms of inequality like racism and slavery and so on, which had never occurred to me. I think there's this assumption that gender oppression has always been. And I know Simone de Beauvoir writing last century, she claimed that the advent of private property is what demanded that women be devalued. But it seems as though you take it quite a different take. I think you associate it with colonisation and the formation of the state, the state system. Can you explain that a little bit better? And I know that you've done a fair bit of work comparing in sort of more recent times what was happening in the 1950s in sort of the communist regimes and then what was happening in the US after the Second World War. I find that really interesting to hear about, you know, and because, again, it blows everything out the water. Well, again, you know, when Simone de Beauvoir is writing about private property, that again comes from this 19th century idea that was put forward by Friedrich Engels that we were all matriarchal once and there was this world historical defeat of the female sex and that's when everything changed. And the point at which that change happens, he theorized, was around agriculture and property, that once we start to have property as human beings, that men want to control that property and so they want to make sure it's passed down to their legitimate children and that's when they start to control women's sexuality and their reproductive rights and claim monogamy and you know control what women can and can't do. And actually the timelines for that don't match up to the evidence that we have. Again, Friedrich Engels was writing with very limited information. He was drawing on these 19th century anthropologists in the US, for instance, 
And he didn't have all the data that we have now. He didn't have all that archaeological evidence that we have now. And that evidence shows us that there was agriculture for a very long time before you get any signs of gendered oppression, Yeah, including at Chattelhuyuk. Like I just said, here is a site that's 9,000 years old in which there are hunter-gatherers, but there are also people farming and domesticating animals and plants. And women were involved in that process for thousands of years. They still are. Many of the world's possibly even most of the world's subsistence farmers now or heading up their own small-scale subsistence farms are women. And I've seen that for myself. When I travel in Asia and Africa, often the farmers that I meet running the farms are are women, the small-scale farms. You know, the timeline doesn't match up. But where we do see very clearly the first roots of gender depression, and it may be that evidence comes up later that shows this to be different, But from what we have right now, those first roots of gender depression start with the emergence of the first states. So when these big entities are first created by powerful elites, their big preoccupation is population. How do we get people to come and stay here within this state and work in order to create a surplus for us and defend the state? That's a huge problem because people could just leave. They don't have to stay if they don't want to. And so that's where you get this interest of the state in the family. You know, we often imagine patriarchy as starting in the family and then radiating outwards. What we see in the data is actually exactly the opposite, that the state takes an interest in the family and that dictates gender roles within the family. Because the state essentially says young women need to have more children and young men need to be available to go out and fight. And you still see that today, that kind of preoccupation with birth rates and defense. Anytime a country, its birth rates start to go down, there's panic, you know, the government starts to worry. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In Australia, we had a prime minister that told us, you know, have a kid for the mother and then one for the state. Like that was in my lifetime. But, yeah, that sort of brings us in a way to post-war, as I mentioned before, because, of course, that was a time when governments uh, in, in America and Western nations were very much sending women back to the home to go and have more children to replace the population. But you notice that in the USSR at the time, there was something very different going on. And even if you if we go up into the 70, 1970s and 1980s, our assumption about these Soviet states being very backward in terms of, you know, gender equality and a bunch of other things was actually really wrong. Can you flesh that out for us? Because I find this really interesting. 
We know so little from that time. You know, it's fascinating for me. A number of years ago, I went to Prague to promote one of my previous books, Inferior. And I was having lunch with a couple of gender scholars in Prague with my husband. And we had left my son with grandparents to be looked after. And we were both complaining about the cost of childcare and how frustrating that was. And they just sat there listening to us for a while. And then they said, you know, here we have exactly the opposite problem, which is that we had free childcare for a really long time. We were expected to work. And now women want to stay at home and look after their children. They want to be traditional housewives. And, you know, it really dawns on you just how different the feminist movement looks in Eastern and Central Europe because of the legacy of the Soviet Union. This was in the 20th century, as well as a kind of whole scale attempt to change class relations. There was also within the Russian Revolution, a commitment to changing how gender worked, you know, however horrifically it turned out in the end. And it was brutal and authoritarian and it ran roughshod over so much of what people actually wanted for themselves. But that was, in modern times at least, the first whole-scale attempt we have seen by a state to really smash the patriarchy. They changed yeah. gender norms within a couple of generations. Women were expected to work. Yeah, they gave women the vote. It became much easier to divorce and abortion was legalised. I read in your book that women made up 79% of all doctors in the sort of, I think, the 1920s to 1950s. I mean, that's incredible. And then you contrast that with in the mid-50s in the US, I think you cite a Gallup poll that found 80% of Americans agreed that a woman who chose not to marry was sick, neurotic, or immoral, or all mm. of the above, I suppose. That's a very interesting thing to point out that, yes, this gender mm. oppression didn't always already exist. I think that's what you're yeah. highlighting here, and that it has generally shifted and morphed according to the state's needs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what happened in the 20th century was as the Soviet Union became more powerful, as it spread and all these socialist states emerged with this mantra of gender equality and gender freedom, the US went in exactly the opposite direction. So before the Second World War, the rates of women in higher education were much higher than after the war. After the war, I mean, here is a country that said to itself, we are free, you are free to make your own choices, live how you want. It's quite remarkable how many people in the 1950s actually followed that very narrow pattern of getting married young and women giving up work as soon as they got married. Whereas in the Soviet Union, exactly the opposite was happening. Women were working at really high rates. They were divorcing if they wanted to. In some regions, you know, they were given public laundries and they would get their food from the canteen. There was one woman I interviewed, Ava Fodor, who was a gender scholar in Eastern Europe. And she said to me when she was growing up in Hungary, she never remembered her mum cooking because mm. they, they just got their food from the canteen. And then maybe they would have a sandwich or something in the evening. It was only when she traveled in North America much later that she saw women cooking and being domesticated. And I think to some degree, because of the Cold War, and this ideological battle, that possibly, I think, played a part in holding back women's rights in the US. Interesting. Because the US was so desperate to make sure that it didn't cede anything to socialism. Anything that kind of admitted that perhaps socialism might be better for women was seen as really, really dangerous. So as a result, Roe v. Wade was passed very late. When you think the Soviet Union legalized abortion in 1920, 
Think of how late those same legal changes came to the US. And the same with working and professions and all the legal freedoms that women have in marriage now. They came very late to the West. But of course, afterwards, it went exactly the other way, that once the Iron Curtain fell. Well, the pendulum is swinging in all kinds of directions. Putin, uh, what's happening in the US with, you know, abortion rights. I mean, it's really hard to tell where everything's going to settle. But I think you write of patriarchy being a very fragile system, that it's propped up because we take parts part in lots of the little things that hold it up. So we see that at anti-abortion rallies, it's mostly young women, you know, that are anti-abortion. And you make the point that with the patriarchy, women leave their families to join the male lineage, you know, so it's women that leave the family home and join the male family. And so they lose their network and their support and their bonds. And so you can see that all these little things that we've done that have become part of the societal norms buttress the patriarchy. Mm, But at the same time, if any of those start to fall apart, the patriarchy suddenly becomes very fragile. So if that's the case, if patriarchy is not a given and it hasn't always already been part of our existence, you know, the human experience, and a lot of us are not really loving it right now, we're not finding it that much chop and it's kind of flimsy, why aren't we able to switch it out for a bit? Why can't we try a different way if if that was what we decided we wanted to do? What's blocking us from, from a change? Well, that's a big question. And this is really what I struggled with towards the end of the book. The final chapter is on the 1979 revolution in Iran, in which women participated, you know, socialists participated, and yet they ended up with an even more conservative regime than the one that they overturned. And we struggle with it. We struggle with social change. Reform happens incredibly slowly. And when there's very big revolutionary change, like we saw in Russia or like we see in Iran, it is very difficult for people to deal with because it's we are not just committed to equality as individuals. We are also committed to our customs and our cultures and our religions and all these other things that are shot through. And if we're honest with ourselves, because it, within patriarchal societies, male domination or you know the kind of underlying ideology of male domination is shot through all of these things, our customs, our traditions, our religions, everything, the structure of the state, everything, to really challenge it, to really smash it would mean challenging all of that. And how many of us can honestly say we would be comfortable with all of that, with losing absolutely everything and starting again? I can't honestly say that I would be. You know, it's it's destabilizing. It's hard. We are cultural creatures, ultimately, as humans. We aren't just kind of floating free, able to live however we want. We are kind of raised in within certain ideas, within certain customs, and they matter to us. So that is one reason I think that change happens so slowly, is that in order to carry everyone along, we have to work within the constraints of what we're used to and what we find comfortable. Yeah, I think there's uh, a lot of dialogue at the moment about whether, in fact, switching out of a patriarchy, you know, toxic masculinity is not benefiting anyone. A lot of those power Mm -hmm. dynamics are intensifying. And I think, you know, even my 74-year-old father's saying, I think it's time that women were in charge. Like, this is not working, so (laughs) let's try this. So when, yeah, when my father, my very white father, starts to talk in that language, I think we, we can probably assume that there is something going on there. But do you see a movement towards something of a more, 
at least balanced approach, which would require some more matriarchal ideas, more women in charge. And look, I, I want to bring in something here. Another thing that you do say in your book is that matrilineal matriarchal societies were often a lot more relaxed about gender identity, which I think is so interesting to discuss right now because obviously gender identity, trans rights, it's experiencing what I would say is disproportionate outrage, like mm-hmm. it's so heated and all of a sudden. And then, of course, you've got Andrew Tate and you've got, you know, a whole range of voices, you know, these extreme masculine voices coming out and it seems to me defending their turf. Do you see that there is a bit of a push happening and therefore we're getting this pushback and fight back and sort of a tightening of patriarchal control? The thing is, we are always shifting. If there's one thing about the history of humanity is that we have always been moving. Nobody ever sits still. Nobody ever says, I'm satisfied. And then society just stays that way for a really long time. There's always this push and pull. There's always this social conflict. And to some degree, we need it because the way we think about the world, the way we think about each other does move. It does keep moving. And so the dial of how we organize society has to keep moving as a result. Now, maybe we're seeing that right now for whatever reason at a much faster rate, and that can be destabilizing for people. You know, I can totally understand why some people feel unmoored by this generation, this amazing generation of young people who think about gender in a completely different way, who have been raised to think, I can be whoever I want. I can be the full individual that I want. I don't have to conform to stereotypes and then take that to the next logical level, which is gender doesn't matter so much that I can, you know, I can transcend it. That is difficult to hear when, you know, however old you are, you've lived within these gender constraints your whole life. But challenging gender norms, transgressing outside those gender norms is fundamentally anti-patriarchal, I think, because the whole idea of the patriarchal state was built on this idea that you have to live within a very narrow box, that this is all you can do. Your job is as, for example, for young women to have children and to stay at home looking after those children. And your job as a young man is to go and fight whether you want to or not. I mean, we only have to look at Russia now. All these poor young men being sent out, conscripted into war, clearly uncomfortable with it. Many of them totally unsuited to it. But the patriarchal state says you don't have a choice. This is how you have to live. So if we really do want to push back against people like Andrew Tate, what we have to do is offer a vision of the world that says this is freeing. Gender equality is not another constraint. Mm -hmm. It is actually letting go of all of that and saying as an individual, you can live how you want. Can we build a society on that premise instead of building it around these very narrow stereotypes? Mm, It's a great, great way of framing it, of framing that complexity that we're all struggling with. Look, I've observed that you obviously lived in the UK for a very long time and you have commented on experiences with racism and obviously gender oppression and a whole range of things. And you've moved to New York recently Does that decision tie in with a little bit of this? I mean, I observe as an Australian that we are quite behind with really good, constructive, progressive and confronting gender and racial discussions. I feel that the UK is a little similar and I look to Europe and US where 
the complexity of all of this is surfacing. It's very alive and there's a lot more discussion. And I'm just wondering, I know this is not something that you normally talk about, but I am intrigued because as some background, I am myself moving away from Australia to Europe shortly in a few weeks. So yeah, I'm just wondering if you can just talk a little bit to that, because I think it is a really interesting time in history. And I think there is a little bit of a difference in what parts of the world are engaged in this very dynamic, interesting debate. But what are the reasons that you're moving? In part because, oh, you flipped the question back onto me. Um, In part (laughs) because I think there is a little bit of complacency, in in fact, quite a lot of complacency that has come from Australia as a very colonised country defining itself in and around this false egalitarianism, this larrikin myth. And what that's done is shut down marginalised groups and discussions that need to be had around that. And, you know, we're talking race and, and gender stuff. And I find that that's not where we need to be. I think that things need to be discussed. We need to really be getting digging down into these myths. So I want to be in a part of the world where these things are messy and we're having the wrestle. What about you? Yeah, similar for me. I mean, we moved for practical reasons as a family, but certainly for the last few years, I've been coming to the US a lot more to do my work. I engage a lot more with US gender and race scholars than I do in any other part of the world because it is a much more, I guess, mature academic debate here than it is anywhere else for historical reasons. But I felt the same when I was in Berlin for a month last year on a fellowship. And that also is a really exciting place in terms of how people think about the future of how we organize ourselves and how we think about gender, how we think about race. And class. And again, it has... And class class. is a really interesting one, which is not discussed in this country. No, yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. I mean, for me, there's no doubt that under this conservative government, the UK has become a really difficult place to live and work for someone like me. And, you know, the work I do with cultural institutions, with universities, all of that has become more difficult over time. So, you know, I let out a big sigh of relief when I left, there's no doubt. And I still feel uncomfortable sometimes going back because of the state of the debate there at the moment and how reactionary it has become. That's not to say there isn't reactionary debate here in the US as well. Of course there is. But at least in New York, I feel that I can find people who, you know, and there are so many of us who are on the same page here and who I can have productive conversations with and start to move forward instead of just what I felt I was doing in the UK, which is always just like a duck kind of paddling as fast as I could and never getting anywhere. Yeah, I think the difference, and I don't know if this is how you feel, uh, is that it gets reactionary perhaps in the UK and Australia and that's where it stops. I think in the US and other parts of the world there's a desire to keep the debate going. So it will get messy and they'll get fractious and there's fragmentation and polarisation but I feel that at least something's happening and hopefully it does have to be dark before we get the light again. And uh, yeah, the, the duck paddling around frantically is it's a good <laughs> metaphor. I feel that, you know, stasis is something that Australia hangs on to. That's a little by the by, but I do think it speaks to this need to shake things up a little. And I think that's what yeah. is happening in the world and, uh, and accepting that the givens that patriarchy always was, well, we don't have to accept that. And therefore that allows actually quite a big opening to go forward. 
Yeah, and that's exactly the message that I want to get out there. I'm really glad that was your takeaway. Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been wonderful to talk to you, Angela. You too. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been an absolute pleasure. So what we can take from that conversation is that patriarchy is kind of ebb and flow according to the state's needs. So the state wants more kids, well, women are sent back to the home and their role is very much restricted. They want more widgets. Women are made to, you know, go back into the workforce. They want to fight a war. Well, men's roles are restricted to being soldiers. I think the point here is that patriarchies tend to be a lot more rigid and controlling than other setups. And they managed to dominate because, you know, they evolved and got very, very powerful at times when technology and science was having an uptick. So they were able to colonise with this rigidity and this control. And so patriarchy spread to the modern day. What's interesting is that patriarchy doesn't just control gender. In fact, that came late in the piece. It also controls class and race. So in many ways, it narrows the roles and scope for all of us. And all of us, well, we tend to buy into its provisions and rituals and lovely ceremonies with the whole machine. So just as a reminder, patriarchy isn't about men versus women. It's all of us complicit in a system. We are all victims and enablers. But it's also a system that is really fragile, and Angela spells that out for us. And it can be morphed, therefore, which is what is happening at the moment in all kinds of economic ways, through identity, across the board. At the end of her book, Angela writes something that I'll just share here. It's actually the last final words of her book. Some will claim that oppression is permanently woven into who we are. They will say that humans are inherently selfish and violent, that entire categories of people are naturally dominant or subordinate. I have to ask, would we still manage to care about each other so much if that were true? Of course, the system of oppression undermines that real human instinct, she says. If we really want to smash the patriarchy, she continues, what we really need to do is to rediscover our ability to love and to care for each other. I think that's a lovely note to finish on. Until next episode, you know, stay wild. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.